closing argument. Walter Hudson. Pursuing happiness thoughtfully. 8 to 10 weeknights on Twin Cities News Talk. AM 1130 and 103.5 FM. It has been a minute since we've had Pastor Nathan Roberts in with us here on Closing Argument. My name is Walter Hudson. We also have, along with Nathan Roberts, Willa Childress, who works with the, uh, and I don't have it immediately in front of me. What is this? The the Pesticide something something? Action Network. Pesticide Action Network. I knew it was something that flowed from the tongue. Pesticide Action Network. And we're going to be talking about environmentalism and environmental concerns and global warming. And uh, it's going to be a fascinating conversation here on Closing Argument with Walter Hudson. My name is that. And Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM is where we're broadcasting from. You can also stream us at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We are here 8 to 10 weeknights, our new time slot. We welcome you. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Brad Omland takes those calls and produces the show. What have you been up to, Nathan? Well, it's Christmas, and so Christmas is busy for pastors. Um, And then I did a bunch of services and wrapped up Christmas celebrating. And then I powered way down, got kind of sick for a couple days. And then I flew over to Mexico, wanted to get there before the wall got too high. <laughs> and uh, spend... did, did you did you encounter any sort of obstacle or federal inconvenience as a result of the ongoing controversy? I'll tell you what, uh, there was some TSA agents that were nonplussed about being there without yeah. pay. They were just kind of waving everybody through. Okay. Um, and, you know, I love Mexican people. There's a lot of Mexican people in my neighborhood, and we had a fantastic trip. Um, yeah, no, it was wonderful. It's a great country, beautiful place. Um, excited to be back. Excited to be here talking to you. Glad to have you back. It has been a while. So much has changed since the last time we've had you on the program. Whole new time slot. Holidays have come and gone. It's an entire new year. It's 2019 now. Uh, the The elections have come and gone. I think that's the last time we had you on was kind of debriefing from the midterm elections. And so there, there's been some time to kind of settle in on where we stand on all that. So now we're, we're here to talk about climate change and environmentalism and the difference in perspective, both in terms of conservative and progressive, but also the, how that divide manifests itself within the Christian community, uh, which is kind of our, our whole shtick and having you here on the program to to kind of represent the the political difference within the Christian community when it comes to different issues. So when it comes to 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 the issue of climate change and global warming, kind of give us your your sort of overview or your your kind of opening statement as it were in terms of how this this issue ought to be approached uh and and i'll open it up to willa as well in terms of where you guys are coming from on this and the concerns that you have when it comes to how conservatives are approaching this issue 
and then we'll engage on that both with me and with our listeners as we continue. Yeah, from a, a Christian religious perspective, for me it's about taking care of the earth that we've been given. It's about a generational consciousness. It's about loving our neighbor, but also loving our future neighbors. The biblical narrative has always been interested in generations. It's common to think in terms of the third and fourth generation. That's a common phrase when talking, particularly in the Old Testament, is to the third and fourth generation. And I think in this moment, when it comes to passing the earth on to the next generation, we as Christians need to be faithful in ensuring that we are giving our children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, the opportunities um, that are their constitutional rights to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of clean water and air. I also recognize that our friends in countries, particularly Kenya, where I spend a significant amount of time, I remember being out in a rural village And they were talking to me about how the growing season is getting shorter and shorter and how it's getting hotter and hotter. And they didn't know why. And they asked me if I had any ideas about why this might be because they're noticing that their growing season is shorter. And it was really difficult because I realized that people who have nothing to do with the way that humans interact with the climate you know, they're still walking around with gourds and sheets robed over for robes, but they're inheriting the issues around pollution. And that's just not fair, and I, and I want to be a part of a solution rather than a part of the problem in that way. I don't know, Willie, you want to jump in? Yeah, that, that really resonates with me, Nathan. I work a lot with farmers in my job, and I, I think a lot of farmers have euphemisms for climate change. Even if they themselves do not believe in climate change, they're experiencing it. They're on the front lines, and it's affecting their profit margins. It's affecting how much food they can produce for their communities. Um, when you talk about feeding the world, that's, I think, something that gets brought up a lot here in the, in the Midwest. And um, as the years progress, it's it's harder to blind ourselves to the realities that we're facing around climate catastrophe, climate chaos. So I I don't want to get too far ahead of myself in terms of, you know, my own personal take on environmental issues. You wanted to explore at the outset here kind of the, the, the broader differences in how conservatives and progressives seem to be approaching this issue and in particular, the the notion of belief in climate change. What's your perception on in how that breaks down in terms of the difference between how people who identify as conservative versus people who identify as progressive tend to express their belief in the the threat of climate change? For me, I think, particularly for Christians who often make up a large segment of the conservative population. When you talk about science, a lot of conservatives, I think, don't question the science behind cell phone technology or a lot of medicine. There's a widespread consensus that scientists do good work and that while it's an imperfect 
approach that they have and there's fits and starts that scientists are able to do incredible things. Where there seems to be a breakdown is when you're talking about scientific theories it seems to me that progressives and liberals are much more quick to adopt large-scale scientific theories than conservatives and the majority of Christians. So, for example, Galileo, the earth revolving around the sun, that was much more difficult for the Christian community to accept than it was for Galileo's contemporaries to accept. Um, Similarly, when natural selection was floated, this idea that the strong survive and that's how adaptation happens on a small scale by Darwin, it was much more difficult for Christians and many conservatives to accept because they already had ideological commitments that many liberals and enlightenment thinkers didn't have. So for example, evolution, most non-religious people don't have an ideological commitment to how the earth was started. They don't have like a dog in that fight whereas Christians have the their biggest dog in that fight. And so it's a much bigger hill to climb. And I think similarly, now that we're getting up to this newest, large-scale scientific theory of climate change, we're seeing the same kind of resistance. And I'm wondering if it's because people feel sovereignty of God is being threatened or... They can't exactly see it or they're just not as open or what exactly it is. But that same react, they're having a different reaction to climate change than when you say, hey, have you seen the new app? Right. You, when, when conservatives, you go, have you seen the new app? They don't go, well, apps. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> like, are there new apps? Scientists coming up with new apps? Mm-hmm. Like, this is crazy. I, I, don't, I don't buy it. So I, it's. I I personally feel as though I'm perhaps ill-equipped to address the specific charge that you're leveling against conservatives. Because for me, it has never been an issue of science versus non-science or science versus religious belief or, you know, is anthropogenic climate change something that exists on some level or not? To me, the question has always been, has always fallen into two categories. One, to the extent that anthropogenic, which is to say human caused climate change is a thing that exists and that we should be concerned about. What's the degree to which it is occurring? What's the degree to which it is, it presents some sort of threat to whatever. And then two, what is the, whatever like this to me seems to be the the blind spot of progressives is climate change is, pre- is presented as being a threat to something. But it's kind of a vague threat in terms of what is it that we're actually saying that it's a threat to? What is it that we're, we're concerned about not being able to perpetuate into the future as a result of climate change? And in particular for me personally, it seems as though it, it, it's difficult to understand what the concern is when the proposed solutions, from my perspective, threaten continued human flourishing. Right? Like, if your if your concern is that, and and looking at your at the notes that you've provided with us for tonight, 
if your concern is the ability of human beings to pursue their values, the 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 integrity of human property, the ability of human beings to live on the coast or you know what whatever the circumstances are, then the underlying principles there are human life, human property, individual rights. And, you know, we're going to get into later here as we explore this in the program that there's a lawsuit that is making its way through the the legal process, through the courts, that it is premised on the idea that children have some standing to sue the federal government for their failure to protect them from climate change. And all, all of that to me, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but all that to me seems predicated, it seems to ignore the question of, what are rights like what what rights do we actually have what is the nature of human rights what is the nature of property rights and if we're primarily concerned about the ability of human beings to survive and thrive why would we prescribe solutions that by my judgment and maybe i'm wrong i'm open to being corrected but by my judgment the the offered solutions to climate change present a greater threat to human flourishing than climate change itself. We'll let you respond to that, and we'll let Willa chime in as well when we return here on Closing Argument. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. And apparently we hit a nerve because the, the lines are lit up on this topic of environmentalism and climate change and our perceptions of what the threat is and what the implications of the threat are. We have in studio Pastor Nathan Roberts, our regular guest in studio to help us try to understand the other side of the aisle, help us try to understand the other side of, from a Christian perspective, the, the, the progressive, there are progressive Christians out there, and it's a growing constituency, and it's important for us to be able to understand where they stand and what their, their premises are and where they're coming from. We also have in studio with us Willa Childress. Uh, who works with the Pesticide Action Network and uh, an environmental organization, and we will expound upon what they do here momentarily. But we want to we want to turn to the caller, seeing as how we're getting such a reaction here, just by evoking the topic of climate change, and see what you guys have uh, to offer us. Let's talk to Joe and Blaine. Welcome to the program, Joe. How you doing? Good, good, and um, you know. I, I've really been uh, perplexed and, and sometimes extremely frustrated by the way the narrative around climate change is presented. The 90% of the time, uh, it's it's presented as something either either swallow the whole theory, or or you're or you're denying science. Right. It's, <laughs> it's all or nothing. It's a, yeah, it's similar yeah. to the whole debate around around uh, you know Darwin's uh, you know adaptation and selection. Right. And, 
Right. I mean, because there's a, there's there's an undeniable science around that. Correct. But the way the way even that issue at times and much of the times is presented is that you either you either deny you know all the science because you you blindly follow some kind of you know uncompromising faith based theory or or you you can't have you can't look at the science and and look at it beside you know other other factors and you know you talk about anthropomorphic climate change uh how how much of what we hear about is that and how much of what we hear about is uh you know geologic cyclical climate change that's been going on for millennia so i mean right. If we have an intelligent conversation about it, but if there's a bait, a baiting going on in this conversation that just annoys the heck out of me. Yeah, I appreciate the call, Joe, and I, I understand where you're coming from. And and to expound upon what Joe is saying, it's difficult. You know, we've talked about good faith in our in our prior conversations when we've had you in the, on the program, Pastor Nathan Roberts. And it's difficult to proceed onto the assumption of good faith when what's at stake is the capacity to live your life according to your own judgment. And that really is what's at stake, is that the what's being proposed is that we need to stop. We need to stop seeking the highest value at the lowest cost. We need to stop seeking the be- the, the most efficient measures by which to produce energy in order to live our lives. We need to slow down uh, when it comes to productivity and what have you for the sake of the earth or for the sake of uh, preventing climate change and its consequences. Do, do, do either of you recognize that as a legitimate concern? And if so, to, to what degree would you address it or, or, or respond to it in, from the perspective that you're coming from? Yeah, I would say I disagree with a lot of those solutions that you've characterized there. I think that um, this is maybe a common misconception on the right, which is that the economic benefits that we have to individually um, go after are at odds, are mutually exclusive with reducing our carbon footprint. And um, I want to get into that. I think that's going to be... An interesting conversation. I think there's a lot there. But Nathan and I brought in um, a report that I think is worth mentioning right now that was by 13 federal agencies showing basically the economic costs of climate change. And this is really important, I think, when you ask these questions, what are the anthropomorphic costs? There are really great researchers that are doing that are answering exactly that question. And so, you know, it's not it's it's it goes so far beyond just the ecosystem cost. If you look at this graph that I'm looking at right now, that's a tiny fraction of the costs that we have um, to, to lose based on climate change. Um, but there's water, electricity, infrastructure, and health. And when you're talking about health, this is the estimate here is $160 billion, um, over the next 100 years that is... A huge cost that would be incurred based on climate catastrophe, based on you know these these kind of downstream problems that come as a result of not taking into account the impacts of our our actions. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's a really interesting question. 
I think most people that you talk to agree that we need clean air, we need clean water, we need a place to live, we shouldn't have um, inequities in terms of our property value. When you're talking about people on the coasts, people who are in vulnerable areas who are most likely to get hit by climate catastrophe, it seems like a huge inequity that that property is then valued so much lower than someone who's in a, in a safe or um, more resilient area. I'd also add that in the same way that it sounds like the caller didn't like that they were being lumped in and asked to sort of take the whole enchilada of climate change, he also sort of seemed to lump in solutions in a similar way that I think there are a way that we can all engage with this work in ways that are appropriate and take a step forward. For example, I think we can all agree that everybody's pretty tired of relying on oil from the Middle East. It's been a pretty raw deal for everybody involved. It's gotten us involved in many, many overseas conflicts that we really didn't have any business being a part of. And Texas is one of the leading states when it comes to energy independence. And America is now the number one producer of oil. That's yes, that's true. And so I think energy independence when it comes to solar panels, like we put solar panels on the roof at our school in Kenya because it's free. It doesn't rely on the government uh, power grid, which is notoriously susceptible to power shortages in Kenya. And so it seems like from a conservative perspective, the idea of not relying on the larger power grid kind of makes sense. I don't know how you feel about. I have involvement with an organization called the Minnesota Conservative Energy Forum, and the position of of that group has been and continues to be that we ought to rely upon whatever source of energy provides the highest value at the lowest cost. And if that is solar energy, if that is wind energy, it it's completely irrelevant i mean the 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 to me and i and i think it stands as a conservative principle the solution to any given problem is what is the, what is best i mean to put it simply what is best what is going to provide the highest value at the lowest cost and be of of the the lowest uh degree of difficulty for people to pursue uh, and, and provide the, the, the highest value in terms of facilitating human thriving and human uh, flourishing and what have you. And if, if the answer to that is solar, if the answer to that is wind, fantastic. But if the answer to that is oil, then to arbitrarily say we shouldn't facilitate oil or shouldn't have oil is to p place a limit on human flourishing, which strikes me as an immoral proposition. And, and I'll give you guys an opportunity. We're a little bit late for a break. Give you guys an opportunity to respond to that. And we'll also talk to Jim and Rosemont, Zach and Lionel Lakes, and Tim in Minneapolis when we return. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson, 651-989-5855, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. Saving the planet. That is the task that lies before us. We have to save ourselves from ourselves. We have to save Earth from human activity. That's that's the premise that we're considering here on Closing Argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. 
streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and on your iHeartRadio app. We are here 8 to 10 weeknights. Appreciate you joining us. You can contribute at 651-989-5855. The lines are lit up at this moment, and we will get to your calls here momentarily. We have in studio with us Pastor Nathan Roberts, our regular guest who helps us understand where progressives are coming from, from a Christian perspective. We also have in with us uh, Willa Childress, who works with the Pesticide Action Network on environmental issues, and we've been talking about the uh, about climate change and about the 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 perception you know it's kind of where we've been sort of orbiting for for this first half hour is the the difference in perception between conservatives and progressives when it comes to what climate change even is and what the implications of it are and uh, what the threats to to human rights are one way or the other so i want to expound upon that or or actually allow you guys an opportunity to respond to the many things that i've had to say regarding where conservatives are coming from on this and uh and willa i feel in particular that that uh, as somebody who has been very active in advocating for progressive solutions to anthropogenic climate change that uh you have some some comebacks for lack of a better term in terms of uh what i've presented so far so the floor is yours cool thanks walter um right before the break you brought up solar and i'm really glad that you brought this up because i think this is a really good example of um, a situation that's more complex, much more complex than face value. Um, when we talk about the government's influence in the market, we, I think, often underestimate the ways that corporations um, are finding sources of revenue that allows them to to show whatever they've got, whether it's oil, whether it's coal, um, to show that option as the most quote-unquote efficient model. Um, But when we're talking about solar, there are billions of dollars, $20 billion annually, that go to the coal and and, um, and gas industries in basically a form of corporate welfare. And so it's not an equal playing field. And when you look at solar and other forms of alternative energy and the opportunities there for jobs, creation of jobs, creation of alternative um, and sustainable forms of energy that can last far into the future beyond the end of oil, which is a limited resource that we have, um, I, I think you can't you can't even compare them. And so it's really important to acknowledge the ways that corporations are wielding their power and um, whether it's in Congress, whether it's on the state or federal level to create this kind of unequal playing field. And I, and it plays out in, in climate change and in our climate change conversation all the time. There's also other costs associated with uh, committing to oil and coal. Um, we're currently $2.4 trillion into two wars in the Middle East that at this point, it's very hard to dismiss the idea that these wars were waged for access to minerals and oil, predominantly from uh, the energy companies that were closely affiliated with Dick Cheney during um, the Bush administration, um, or as I like to call it, the Cheney administration. Uh, also, like Willa said, there's $20 billion a year a year going to coal and oil companies in form of tax subsidies. 
uh, we continue to pay the cost for rising sea levels and increased climate disaster around hurricane disasters. I mean, we're this country is getting pummeled by hurricanes because of uh, higher water temperatures. And I think when you wrap these things together, what you find is there are all these other costs that are associated with continuing to invest and use coal and gas and other less for clean forms of energy. Now, I think there's a really important discussion to have around the solution for cap and tax, um, where they talk about paying for the future costs and who would get to decide that, who would get to sit on the panel that say, you actually owe X amount of dollars because you're selling gas and that is going to ultimately lead to this person's house being underwater in the Florida panhandle. And so you owe an extra 25 cents who decides that. So I think that's a difficult conversation that we haven't had very transparently or very well, but I think it's one that we need to have because we can't continue to pretend like these costs aren't stacking up. All right. So uh, it's, l let me just say at the outset that it's, extraordinarily difficult for me to hold my tongue in terms of responding to all the things that you guys have said up to this point. I want to turn it over to our callers who have been very patiently holding. And uh, we've got not only the, the last segment of this hour, but the entirety of the nine o'clock hour to kind of unpack these issues and explore them further. Let's start with Jim in Rosemont. Oh, I, actually, I guess we're going with uh, Dom in Maple Grove. I pressed the wrong button. Go ahead. Dom, how you doing? Hello. Hi. Oh, am I online? Yes. Hey, yeah, this is Dom from Maple Grove. You know, I, I guess I uh, I wasn't going to chime in, but then I guess it's an interesting topic you guys are talking about. Uh, I was recently <clears throat> in India, which is where I am from, and uh, basically in the town, town called Bangalore. I don't know if you guys have heard of that or whatever, but... <clears throat> A lot of these street vendors are now, I was really surprised that they hadn't been in a couple of years, uh, are using like people that give out, you know, like the juice and fruit, uh, fruit juices and, and hot food and stuff like that, have their street vending carts completely solar powered. And I was really surprised to see that. But now, my perspective on this thing, it works in a place like India because most of the country is, is hot weather. And unfortunately, the only way I can believe in the goodness of the approach of climate change, okay, it's affecting the whole planet, we don't, unless we make it personal, I'm not going to buy into that. Because I think the argument that you made a while ago was like, you know, let the market decide whichever is the least expensive way to get this done. But if I'm talking about it in generalities in terms of, okay, it's causing all kinds of hurricanes and stuff like that, what comes to mind is Al Gore, Leonardo DiCaprio and all of those people going out to the UN and talking about this crap. You and I are paying the bill for, in fact, if you want to buy a car that's a hybrid, it's going to cost me more than a gasoline engine. I don't have a problem with, you know, um, changing my pattern, my lifestyle based on climate change. But why are you punishing me, which is um, living paycheck to paycheck? Well, you go out there, jet set, and talk to people about climate change. You got to do this, you got to do that, take the bus to work, whatever. That's my problem. I appreciate the call, Doc. You lived your lifestyle, so you can tell me what I can do with mine. 
I appreciate the call, Don. So let me try to reframe Dom's concern. You, you seem to have conceded the notion that it is difficult to try to price in public policy fashion the the negative externality of the impacts of environmentally destructive activity, whatever you define that to be. And yet, if we do that, if we threw some form of carbon tax or some kind of restriction upon how much carbon producers can make, whatever the case may be, if we place some sort of restriction on that or we impose some kind of tax, there is going to be an impact upon real people's lives. Like, And the first people to fill that are going to be the poorest of the poor. It's going to be the person who's right there on the margin, who you know depends upon prices remaining where they're at, and then all of a sudden prices get elevated in order to compensate for carbon production, and then they get pushed into abject poverty. How do you address that person? How do how do you address that concern that your suffering is on behalf of the greater good? Well, I think that's under the assumption that consumers are the ones that have to take on the costs. Um, when in fact, you know, the everyday person has very little impact on climate change. If you're really looking at solutions that are going to cut to the heart of this issue, you're looking at impacting the producers. You're looking at, you know, the 100 companies that are most responsible for climate change. And the impact of um, those impacts are not going to are not going to fall down to the, you know, everyday person in the same way. I also think that there is this notion that's been messaged and rightly or wrongly, I think a lot of conservatives have felt personally attacked for their lifestyle. Um, for liking driving large cars, for um, feeling like if you don't recycle, you're a terrible person. And I think these sort of small... Does anybody not recycle at this point? Like, I I kind of feel as though everybody does. You should come to my neighborhood, because there's a lot of people who think that recycling, that just, it gets recycled if you throw it in the grass. I gotcha. Um, That's what's Eventually. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah, I know. On a long enough time scale... (laughs) Everything's recycled. Yeah, that's true. But I think that that has been a divide and conquer tactic of corporations to divide uh, working class conservatives and working class uh, liberals. When actually, if we were united, and we've talked about this before, if we were united against billion dollar corporations that are polluting our our um, thing, it's easier to control us if we're divided. And I don't understand why a lot of these corporations who are definitely pouring stuff into the lakes, they're not recycling. I mean, there's some really egregious offenders. Um, I personally have switched over to the solar grid um, with uh, XL Energy, and it's been about the same cost, maybe a little bit more per month, a couple dollars more per month, but... um, in terms of the long-term impact, I feel really good about that, and I'm in an economic position to do that. And so I do think some people who are in the middle, upper middle class and upper class, need to bear some more of these early costs as the technology advances 
if we are going to make it affordable for everybody. All right. When we return, I want to clear the lines. Uh, we've got some callers who have been holding on for quite some time. And we have Willa Childress in with us from the Pesticide Action Network and Pastor Nathan Roberts, our regular guest, uh, progressive pastor, to provide us with an alternative perspective. My name is Walter Hudson. Closing argument, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, closing argument, the name of the program, 651-989-5855. My name is Walter Hudson. We have in studio with us Willa Childress of the Pesticide Action Network and Pastor Nathan Roberts. A number of calls on the line that I've been holding for a very long time. Appreciate you guys being patient. Let's go to Jim in Rosemont. Welcome to the program. Hey, Walter. Thanks for taking my call. Yep. Hey, I'll be real quick. Uh, one of the biggest turnoffs, and I, I'm a Christian conservative. I believe in the God of the Bible, that he is creator of heaven and earth and that he will sustain his creation. When I listen to scientists, most scientists believe in evolution. So right off from square one, it's like if if they can't get creation versus evolution right, why would I have any faith or believe in their global warming or global cooling or climate change theory? I can't move past that they're getting creation wrong. So first off, for me, that that's square number one. All right. Appreciate the call, Jim. As a pastor, Nathan, do you see this tension or contradiction between the notion of God creating the universe, creating existence, and the theory of evolution? Yeah, I'm not going to lie. That's a really tough one for me. Um, some progressive Christians will say there's no contra- contradiction there that they go hand in hand. There are some people that will say um, natural selection is happening, but God is sort of massaging the process. I'm not really sure. It's really difficult for me to conceptualize how those fit together in any kind of way. I do recognize that there are millions of year old fossils in the ground. And also I am a deeply religious person who believes in God. And I wish that I had more ways to connect those two things. I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. It is a real obstacle um, and a legitimate one to say, if we're not going to square off on some of these fundamental principles about the world, how am I going to trust you to make other larger claims? Um, It's also an issue that Christians have had for a long time. Christians were reluctant, as we said before, to accept that the earth revolved around the sun um, because the Bible has some passages that seem to suggest otherwise in sort of a passing way. I would also say that, the first book of the Bible I read as a poem and not as a historical document. Uh, when I hear one, two, three, four, five, six, seven days, um, that it's a week, I read that that as a poetic musing on 
how someone feels that uh, marveling at creation, marveling at the stars, marveling at humans. I don't think that a person 4,000 years ago was sitting down writing down the scroll of Genesis in a scientific like way. The scientific method hadn't been created at that point. So I'm thinking they're, they're doing more musings um, and metaphors. So that's kind of how I, I see it. Um, I do also want to say that I think a lot of scientists have been very condescending to Christians. Um, and I know that a lot of liberals have been very condescending to Christians. And I think that there has been as particularly the new atheist movement, the Dawkins, the, um, I don't know who are the other guys. Something with an S. Yeah. <laughs> they're just angry at Christians and they right. kind of poke Christians at all every turn. And I don't think that's loving. Um, and I, I think that's caused the deterioration in the relationship, in the trusting relationship, because I do think Sam Harris, that's right. Sam Harris. Yes. I do think that there is a nature of, if you don't trust the person or the community, and you don't feel respected by them, mm. you're very apprehensive to accept difficult news from that community. Let's talk to Zach in Lionel Lakes. Thanks for holding. Hi. Hi. Just just to warn you, this is probably going to be pretty long, so is there time? There's like a minute and a half. Okay. So, so I, first of all, I want to say like we we uh we got to start at the at the right beginning point, otherwise like the conclusions will be false because I don't think the the issue is whether or not uh, you know we got we got all the right facts, but I uh, think the the issue is are we interpreting the facts correctly? Because we can have all the facts in the world, but if we're interpreting them incorrectly, we could say that when the Bible says the sun rose, then that means that the sun literally rises in relation to the earth. That's not what is intended by that saying, but that doesn't mean that the the, the word is inaccurate. Now, with this in mind. What if we looked at the issue of pollution, which I believe is separate from the issue of climate and the way climate changes, um, through the lens of an ethical judicial perspective, where God rewards people who do right and God punishes those who do wrong in history according to the righteousness or the wickedness of what they do. So with this in mind, let's go to the issue of pollution. Um, I recommend that you guys listen to um, an, an episode of Axe to the Root with Bojidar Marinov called Technology and the Environment. He brings up the analogy of a cannonball placed on the top of a mountain and all the potential energy stored there and how if you knock that cannonball down a hill and start some water wheels and stuff, you're capturing that energy and putting it to good use for those water wheels. And... And uh, the problem is, though, can you capture all of that energy? So his premise, his beginning premise, and I want to hear what you guys think of it, is that pollution is merely energy that we have not captured efficiently. And so if we start out with the dominion mandate as described in the Bible, and we start with that dreaded profit motive, which a lot of liberals I know uh, don't like, and... Don't get me wrong, we should get rid of all the cronyism, too. That doesn't help with the Dominion mandate. That goes against it. Then pollution naturally will decrease in history because we're finding better uses for that energy that is wasted. 
appreciate the call, Zach. I, we, we will have to respond when we return on the other side of the break. And I'll, I'll reframe Zach's concern because I think what he, he's getting after something that is very valid. And that is the, the notion that, you know, this is not a unique problem. This is not a 21st century problem. Pollution has, has been an issue since time immemorial. And it, it, it seems to be a consequence of basically a lack of human knowledge. Like if we knew a better way to produce energy, if we knew a better way to produce the things that we need in order to survive and thrive, we would do that. But until we get to that point, are we going to stop doing what we know how to do? TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. change is it real is it something we should be concerned about how should public policy reflect whatever the scientific consensus is twin cities news talk am 11 fm closing argument my name's walter hudson streaming at twincitiesnewstalk.com and on your iheart radio app we are here eight to ten weeknights appreciate you joining us 651-989-5855 is the number to contribute to the program. Brad Omland taking your calls and producing the show. In studio, we have with us Pastor Nathan Roberts, our regular guest who helps us understand where progressives are coming from, what they think, what makes them tick. We also have with us Willa Childress, who works with the Pesticide Action Network on environmental issues. And we're talking about environmental issues. We're talking about climate change and the the difference in perspective and prescription when it comes to uh, public policy here on the program. Tim in Minneapolis has been holding for 40 minutes. That might be a record. Thank you for holding, Tim. Welcome to the program. All right. I have a slightly different perspective. You can find out a little bit more. I do a show or online program called timstv.com. But when... The meteor hit that killed the dinosaurs, the Earth was 13 degrees warmer. That meteor destroyed almost all life on Earth. We spend no time talking about how we would survive the meteor that killed the dinosaurs. At the same time, that ice age began to warm 15,000 years ago. So the Earth has been warming to its pre-meteor temperature for the last 15,000 years. We should adapt to the planet that the dinosaurs had while at the same time planning for how would we survive what destroyed the dinosaurs. We know it wasn't man-made global warming. The how, What are we going to drink? Where do we get fresh water after the next meteor hits? Do we have plants that we can feed battery acid to in the dark in freezing temperatures and get healthy food out of? Those are the things we should be investing our money in, not how do we prevent the Earth from returning to a glacier-free planet, which is what the dinosaurs lived and thrived in? We have water management issues coming along with the melting of all the glaciers on Earth, which is natural. The Earth had the northern hemisphere had no glaciers the day the meteor hit that killed the dinosaurs. That is the Earth's natural pre-meteor state. That is the direction we will be in in one to two thousand years. Stopping the Earth from warming up to its pre-meteor temperatures is foolish. Planning for the next meteor would be the intelligent thing to do while managing a warming planet. My thought on how you deal with rising seawater 
is Death Valley can hold a lot of glacier water. Uh, the outback in Australia can hold a great deal of water. There are low-lying areas on all the continents where we can divert the rising seawater to save New York, to save London. But what we should be concentrating on is how do we survive a okay. the dinosaurs. All right, I but appreciate it. your guys' point of view. I appreciate it, Tim. I, I, I let him get that out because he waited for 40 minutes. I loved it. But my lord... Battery powered plants. What? I, I love- don't know. I think from a progressive perspective, there is a nugget of truth in what Tim was saying. Absolutely. Oh, and by all is- means. <laughs> I was vibing on it. I'm gonna lay it on you. And okay. this is this is what I've been saying this whole time, which is that we are experiencing more climate related catastrophes than we ever have um in in human history. And there is a lot of resources, you know, whether we're talking government dollars, taxpayer dollars, human lives that are that result from these kinds of catastrophes. And I think most people when we have a hurricane, when there's a huge drought, when there are the like the fires that happen in California this fall, most people support helping people out. Um I think that's that generally, regardless of where you fall on kind of the economic spectrum, when there's a huge disaster that happens in the United States, people are in favor of providing support and the government will declare um, you know, a national disaster. These are things that generally happen and are happening more often. And so there's a real cost, a real measurable cost with that. And I am advocating that if you're going to have self-regulated markets, that cost should be factored into the price that either consumers or producers um, have to pay. So so I would argue, and I'll, I'll let you respond, Nathan, but yeah, I would argue that the market does factor those costs in. The, the market factors all costs in. That's what the market is, is the 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 that the the difficulty of trying to impose a perceived cost onto the market through regulation is that how do you quantify it how do you quantify a and, and it's it's interesting because to, to me it seems like we're we're erring on two sides of the transaction on the one side, we want to have all of these these programs. You talk about disaster relief. You talk about you know FEMA. The, the you talk about the, the the loan subsidies that people are able to benefit from when it comes to building their homes in floodplains or building their homes in hurricane prone areas and what have you. So on that side of the transaction, we're distorting price by not letting people actually uh, incur the actual economic cost of assuming that risk and then on the other side of it we're going to say well we need to compensate somehow for the the unaccounted for cost of climate change by imposing on the back end imposing on the rest of us like i in minnesota those of us in minnesota who are nowhere near the coast who are who are not in floodplains we have to pay more for our gas we have to pay more for our heating oil we have to pay more for our energy production 
in order to compensate for the costs that we've subsidized for the folks who have chosen to build their homes in hurricane-prone areas or floodplains. If we just get, and this is, again, you know, the libertarian perspective, and I'm interested in hearing both of you guys respond to this, the libertarian perspective is let the market account for cost in the, in the actual transactions, in the actual risk that's being assumed by choosing to live in a particular area that is prone to a particular natural process. So I would say a couple things. Um, it sounds like you're, and maybe I'm wrong, assuming that this needs to be a federal program. It's it very, is a federal program. It's very there possible. There is federal flood insurance that is subsidized that allows people to live in these areas at low cost. Yes. It doesn't have to be that way. Um, would you be open to a state-run program where you're only subsidizing people in your state? I mean, personally, I would be opposed to all of the above. It's constitutional. But yes, it's it's preferable. Yes, a state program would be preferable. I also think that we also have to continually ask who benefits from America's addiction to oil, for us being reliant on oil, and from us not exploring other forms. And I think it is the massive oil companies who buy... Uh, people in Washington who make what for them is very small campaign contributions in order to get favorable deductions and tax shelters and setups. Um, I also think that if we were to stop relying so heavily on oil, we can free ourselves from some other entanglements that we've been entrenched in for a long time, particularly in the Middle East. And I also think oil companies who have proven themselves not to be our friends, like for example, with this oil pipeline that was going through, um, in through native populations in North Dakota, I believe. It's but, through Minnesota as well. The line three pipeline, the line three pipeline right now. Yeah. So these pipelines that are going through, they didn't want to put it through, uh, the larger city, so they're putting it through native reservations. We see this over and over again. And these oil pipelines are prone to spill. We've had oil spills. There are no equivalent oil spills that I know of associated with renewable energies. Yeah, this is a can of worms because then you're talking about, when you talk about um, native territories, you're talking about sovereign nations. And so that brings up a whole issue of sovereignty and whether the U.S. actually respects treaty rights in the way that, in the way that we you know, wrote treaties back in the day. Which evokes, in my mind, the, the issue of this lawsuit that is making its way through the federal courts uh, put forward on behalf of the young, on behalf of children. The youths. The youths. Uh, it, that that basically says the federal government has failed to take action on climate change, and they're basically suing the government to compel them to take action on climate change. I'm very interested in exploring the moral premises and the legal premises upon which that challenge is based. When we return, we have in studio with us Pastor Nathan Roberts and uh, activist Willa Childress from the Pesticide Action Network with us. My name is Walter Hudson. Closing argument to One Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. You can join us at 651-989-5855.
Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM, Talk.com. Global warming, environmentalism. These are the things we're talking about tonight on Closing Argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. You can join us at 651-989-5855. We have in studio with us Pastor Nathan Roberts. We also have Willa Childress from the Pesticide Action Network. At some point before the end of the hour, we are going to tell you what that is what the Pesticide Action Network is, what they do, what they're all about. I I personally am curious and do not know the answer. So it would be great to discover before on the air before we get to the end of the program tonight. Let's take a call from Barry in St. Paul. Welcome to the program. So people on uh, left always want to talk about pollution that comes from oil and gas research and spills and stuff like that. And, yes that happened, but they never want to talk about the pollution that happens in China primarily um, from the exploration of looking for these resources to build the solar panels or want to talk about the death of bald eagles, golden eagles, and other endangered species that we fight for and they fight for extremely hard from windmills or that we don't build uh hydropower plants anymore because of environmental regulations about the death of fish and stuff like that, even though in other countries they find it more economical to build hydropower plants, and that is a green technology. You can't argue that it isn't, but we don't subsidize that anymore. So their argument is disingenuous, and let's start talking about all this on both sides. Appreciate the call, Barry, as always. So, you know, is there a because what Barry's getting after, or at least what I perceive he's getting after, is something that I have articulated in the past regarding the, you know, not necessarily the rank and file environmentalist, the rank and file environmental activist. I think that you know, folks such as yourself, Willa, are acting in good faith with genuine concern for the future of our nation, the future of the planet. But it occurs to me that, you know, for some of the more extreme elements within the green movement, it seems as though what they're actually opposed to is human life. Like they're, they're opposed to the perpetuation of and, and, and flourishing of human existence when they oppose literally every mechanism by which we use rationally in order to generate energy and produce the things we need in order to feed ourselves and in order to get ourselves from point A to point B in order to sustain modern civilization. Uh, from the inside, from, as somebody who works within within the environmental movement, how absurd is that concern in your view? And, and what where do you see the kind of the, the, the median uh, position being in terms of where environmentalists are at? Yeah, you know, I've never met anyone who was pro-voluntary extinction. Um, I'd love to. I'm sure they're out there. Some really, some people who are like really sad about the state of the world. Um, but I think that Barry's question 
really gets to the environmental costs of alternative energy. You know, the fact that there is no panacea, that um, forms of alternative energy like hydropower, like solar power, uh, require mining. He was talking about the mining of rare earth metals, for instance, which is required for, you know, not just solar, but many of the technologies that we use. And, you know, these are valid questions, but I don't ever see these questions brought up in in like a real scientific this is the cost here and this is the cost here kind of way it's always it's always like smoke and mirrors you know well what about this what about the fact that everything has a cost and everything has a consequence which of course it does um i think it's important for us to have sound science that compares the the climate and energy costs and environmental costs of all of the alternatives that we have and that our money is going towards the technology of the future, towards the solutions that we need um, in order to, you know, build the energy economy that we'll have in, in 40 years, because that economy won't be run by oil and coal. It won't. I mean, we just, you know, the, the science says that if we burn all of the oil that currently exists, we will go above the threshold um, for for carbon emissions that humans can safely survive under. So, you know, that this is something has to shift. Otherwise, there are going to be huge climate consequences. I also think there is a similar thing operative in the science, the questioning of science, as there is in the fake news issue that we have, where someone will critique oil or gas or bring up a climate change argument and they'll say, well, show us the data. And then you'll show them the data and they'll go, well, that's fake science. You kind of don't really have anywhere else to go at that point. I mean, if, if we're going to question the science on it, I'm not exactly sure what they're looking for, like what would evidence that was permissible in the conservative consciousness, what would that look like? What would that evidence even look like? Because the overwhelming evidence from 13 federal agencies, the vast majority of scientists, the science that has shown that there is not human made uh, climate change is largely been shown to have been funded by oil and coal companies. I just am not sure what they're looking for. Could you, I mean, that's, that's a real question. I'm, I'm wondering what it is that they're looking for. So I, I think the, the issue in order to, to answer that question, I think the issue really cuts to deeper philosophical concerns. And, and I think the, the easiest way to exemplify it is by referencing this lawsuit that's making its way through the federal courts on behalf of children where kids are apparently and and you know you're in a better position to articulate accurately what the actual case is than i am because i love kids so much (laughs) but kids are apparently suing the federal government for not taking whatever action is necessary in order to prevent climate change juliana versus the u.s is the case and so this raises all sorts of interesting philosophical questions because, you know, and, and you, su- you suggest some here in, in the show notes that you provided for us so generously here tonight. 
you know, the, who has responsibility for uh, the 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 future impacts upon property. You know, our property, our individual property rights, our people who live on the coast, um, do they have a a right to having their property protected from climate change? That's an interesting question, which to my mind is in the same category as do I have the right to have my property protected from any weather? Like, do I have my... Do I have the right to have my property protected from a tornado? Do I have the right to have my property protected from a thunderstorm? Okay, I think that's a really important question. And I think you have the right to insurance. Which I pay for. Right, but they're not offering insurance, flood insurance, to people who live in Houston, in many parts of New Orleans anymore. They're not offering that anymore. Which which suggests so if the market isn't providing that, then what that suggests to me as a market guy is that the the cost benefit ratio is off, right? Like in other words, you shouldn't live there. Like if if it's so if the risk is so high that something terrible is going to happen to your property in a particular area if you build there, then you shouldn't build there. But what if the reason why? is because corporations are polluting at a rate and you can't control that. Like the people who live in weather prone areas that are getting pummeled are not in control of the main perpetrators of climate change. So if we were to wind the clock back a couple hundred years and we were to, to take a trip across the pond over to London, which was saturated with, with smoke and ash and was just a god-awful place to live. And yet, people voluntarily chose to live there because of the benefits of living in what at that time was considered an urban environment, which enjoyed the the pinnacle of what at that time was technological advancement, which was putting wood in a fireplace, setting it on fire, and enjoying the warmth, which produced ash, produced smoke. Should we tell, And having a job in a factory. Should we tell people... That in order to spare their neighbor and spare future generations from the health consequences, the very real scientifically quantifiable health consequences of inhaling smoke and ash, that they have to freeze to death? Like, what, what I'm suggesting is, is that it's not, for, it's not for lack of moral consideration that we choose to engage in the methods of energy production that we do. It's for lack of knowledge, right? Like we're doing the best we can, and we're we're, we're the in in order to facilitate the advancement of technology to the point. Like there is no natural. You know, one of the previous callers kind of hinted at this. That in fact, it was Zach and Lionel Lakes who's back on the line with us. The if there was a better way of doing things, where we could produce a greater amount of energy or even the same amount of energy with a lesser amount of byproduct there's a natural incentive to do that of course we want to do that but if we don't have the political freedom to pursue it then it's never going to happen it, but is it are you willing to entertain that possibly we don't have that because of propaganda from oil and gas and also large subsidies that are being made to oil and gas companies in order to artificially lower the cost of oil and gas for political gain by politicians. 
Yes, as a as a libertarian and as as somebody who has always been a contrarian within the Republican Party, I'm completely open to the notion that there are that that the the thumb has been placed on the scale in the other direction. The thumb has been placed in the scale of the corporate direction. Absolutely. Walter, I can give you a good example and also describe what I do in my job, which you asked for earlier. <laughs> um this this varies or this kind of departs a little bit from climate change, but I work at an organization called Pesticide Action Network, as Walter mentioned before. I've heard of that. It's a food and farming organization. Um, we work with folks who are on the front lines of pesticide exposure. So people who are experiencing environmental contamination that is impairing their ability to live healthfully in their community. Um, and these are you know, farmers and farm workers, people in rural communities, folks who generally are, are have less access to um, you know, medicine, People who are economically disadvantaged because they're living in in economies that have been really um, haven't been doing well in our current farm economy. And are um, you talking about like cancer or what are the health costs? Yeah, I mean there 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 are risks associated with acute exposure to pesticides, which often look like you know pesticide poisonings often look like um, flu symptoms. People go in with rashes. Um, nausea they're vomiting a lot of times rural health practitioners don't have specialized knowledge on this issue and they might not even diagnose that this person has been exposed to something in their workplace or you know from a neighbor's field um but then when you talk about the long-term harms yeah cancer um diseases that are um neurological in nature um and developmental diseases and especially when you're talking about children children have a a high propensity um for these these kinds of issues anyway that's a long precursor to what i'm going to use as an example for this which is the the food and farming system which is very influenced by a couple of organizations a couple of corporations that have been consolidating there were six companies that controlled the market of seeds and pesticides several years ago. Now there are three. I feel a Monsanto coming on. (laughs) Yeah, well, Monsanto Monsanto is no more. Now Bayer of Bayer Aspirin um, owns Monsanto. So we'll see how long we can even keep that name alive with all of the baggage that comes with it. For good reason, because I think everyone agrees Monsanto's, you know... It's a liberal swear word. Terrible thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's just important to acknowledge that environmental issues come up a lot in food and farming, and farmers are kind of on. They're in this very tricky place where they're beholden to these companies, but they also are being asked to do a lot environmentally because they have a lot of environmental impacts, and agricultural subsidies have totally created this artificial market where farmers are overproducing food. They're overproducing food we don't necessarily eat, like corn and soybeans, which go to fuel and food for other animals. Um, And then they're using that land in ways that, you know, they could otherwise be diversified or preserved. And this isn't because this is a normal or natural way of farming. If you talk to farmers about, you know, the system that they found most economically beneficial, the system that they look back on with a lot of nostalgia it's a system that's you know smaller farms more diversified you're you're growing food for people in your community but because our government provides crop insurance um to a very specific set of farming practices 
that's what happens. And that's where environmental consequences are coming in. So very specific and wonky uh, example of what I think is also happening in a lot of other areas. All right. we're, We're hitting upon an area of potential strong agreement, but we're very late for our bottom of the hour break. 651-989-5855. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, in that last segment, so this one's going to be super short. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk. AM 1130, 103.5 FM, streaming at com and your iHeartRadio app. We are here 8 to 10 weeknights. Appreciate you tuning in. Brad Omland taking your calls and producing the show. Those calls can go in at 651-989-5855. Let's talk to Zach in Lionel Lakes, calling back to uh, yeah. give us a follow-up. So uh, I want to continue with what I was saying earlier. So I think the word dominion gets a bad rap, especially in people of my school of thought. So two different things that I, that I want to expound upon. When I say dominion, it's, there's several other aspects of it um, that, are, that are also critically important in this discussion. So the first one is something I brought up before, the one who serves leads. People think of, when they think of the word dominion, some, some high and mighty guy trying to rule over people. That's not what dominion really is about. Dominion is, is about serving in every area of life. So the problem with all these solutions we see around us is that, that these solutions, whether they be these corporatist uh, solutions with big corporations or whether it be big government solutions to fix pollution and or the climate, is that they rely on the worship of power ruling over other people, which goes completely contrary to the model Jesus set when he said, don't, be, don't rule like the, the, the rulers of the world. The one who would be great among, among you must be a servant. But this is also true in private interactions. So if you're a farmer, you, you have to find a way to, you have a challenge before you to, to make sure that, that you are being productive and yet that you're also serving, and that also brings me to the uh, the third aspect of it. You know, or you have to you have to think of the future. So here's the thing: I actually have experienced some of these things that you're talking about with uh, you know with pesticides firsthand. I can't get into all the details on yet, as far as I maybe I maybe I'll have a chance to later. The thing is. <sighs> What if we looked at the issue of climate as well as a, as a sanction for right and wrong, you know, doing something right or something wrong in, in history? Uh, Bojidar Marinov's Acts to the Red episode, The Little Ice Age, makes the case that the Little Ice Age was because of unethical, i.e. stagnant, non-future-oriented, non-service-oriented, non-innovative methods of agriculture were, were to blame for it because God decided to judge that sort of action by making the climate not conducive to being able to be stagnant anymore, to force people, people to be better at serving. 
and better at looking towards the future. And uh, what, what if we uh, what if we stopped asking who has the power to point their guns at whom, and instead, how can we build a culture where from even from the individual level all the way up to the highest echelons of power, people are only focused on serving other people rather than lording over other people. I appreciate I appreciate the call, Zach. We, we're uh, running short on time. Lots of dense information in there. I did love the notion that people need to be service-oriented, and I do think that at its best, that's what Drain the Swamp was supposed to be about was this idea of lifetime politicians becoming entrenched with high-end lobbyists who make decisions that affect people without regard for our input. And I do think that Jesus at his best is a step against that, and I do think that that's something that most conservatives and progressives and liberals and libertarians can all get around, is the fact that it would be these conversations would be easier if we trusted that our leaders had our best interests and were serving us rather than their own financial interests. All right, in our final segment tonight with Pastor Nathan Roberts and Willa Childress of the Pesticide Action Network, we're going to talk about the things we agree on, at least the three people in this room, the things that we agree on uh, coming out of our conversation for two hours now about the environment and climate change and environmental issues Closing argument, my name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM, com. Closing things out tonight on Closing Argument, my name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM. In studio, we have Pastor Nathan Roberts. We also have Willa Childress of the Pesticide Action Network. We've been talking about environmental issues, climate change, and what have you. And uh, I want to spend our final roughly four minutes tonight talking about areas in which we agree. And it seems, based upon our offline, you know, during the break conversations, that it it, it largely orbits around the concept of regulatory capture, the idea that powerful interests are able to take control of public policy in a way that benefits them at the exclusion of literally everybody else. Mm -hmm, Definitely. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm all for, and I know that it's, it's, it's a difficult conversation that we need to have within libertarian circles and within Republican and conservative circles about what it, what it actually means to be for the market, because I feel as though the market has like in, general conservative parlance has expanded to include things that it shouldn't include such as like you, we talked about Monsanto before uh, the, the, the idea that, Oh, Monsanto can cre- genetically engineer a new seed and then sue farmers for having that seed, which they bought, you know, they buy the seeds, they plant the seeds, the seed grows. And then the plant produces its own seeds and then those seeds fall in the soil and then the next season those seeds grow and then Monsanto gets to sue the farmer for violating their trademark. That's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And we all ought to be able to believe or, or agree that that's ridiculous and that that's an, an abuse of what trademark was originally conceived to cover. Absolutely. And the fact that the pesticides used to propagate that, Willa was saying, are, again, from 
companies like Monsanto are giving farmers cancer. The federal government is subsidizing particular crops that suit Monsanto's uh, offerings. These forces are working together against Americans. And I think that wherever you are on the, wherever you do 60-40, 70-30, human versus the earth causing climate change, I think we can recognize that the people who are in charge of our country are often colluding against small people for their own gain. Yeah, and I think another piece we need to be very skeptical of is corporate-funded science. I think there's this question um, that comes up a lot of, you know, we talked about it at the beginning of the show, are Republicans anti-science? And I think we have to talk about what science, what science is and what science isn't and what science can get done based on funding streams. In the same way that Republicans are right to question the Washington Post as owned by Jeff Bezos, I think they should use that same metric to say who funded this study because they're, they find that an important piece of information when it comes to the Washington Post. So let's ask that same question about climate research. So one of the things that I've cited, and unfortunately we have, we don't have the time necessary to fully explore this, but one of the things that I've talked about in, in that regard is it seems as though the questioning of motives only works one way in that regard, where it's, Oh, this, this study was funded by the oil industry. Therefore, we should view it with a high degree of skepticism. Whereas if it was funded by the United Nations International Panel on Climate Change, well, it's gospel. There's, there's no possible negative motivation that anybody could have in terms of approaching it. But of course, there, there are motivations. There are economic motivations on all sides. I mean, if you, if you, if you get your money through government grants, then you're going to be incentivized to produce a result that results in more government grants, more government research, and what have you. Last 20 seconds. <laughs> I think the, the most important thing is that when we have these conversations, that we trust that the other person is speaking in good faith. Appreciate the conversation with Pastor Nathan Roberts and Willa Childress of the Pesticide Action Network. We will see you guys tomorrow, 8 to 10, here on Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130.